Thanks to Bombfell for supporting The Motley Fool. Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men that helps find the right clothes for you. Get $25 off your first purchase at bombfell.com slash fool. That's B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner. So pleased to have you with me this week. It is the last week of May. In fact, it is the week of Fool Fest. So if you're a Motley Fool member, you might have gotten an invitation to this year's Fool Fest that you may or may not have taken us up on. I'm happy to say it's sold out once again this year. So we'll be seeing um, hundreds and hundreds of members coming in from around the country, in some cases the world, a little bit later this week. Always a highlight for us here in Alexandria, Virginia at Fool HQ. So if I'm going to see you at Fool Fest, please, please show me your Rule Breaker Investing secret handshake. All right, so it is mailbag. And I've got about nine or ten queued up, as it seems I have every time this time of the month. What's not usual for this time of the month is usually I've gotten more sleep, but for whatever reason, my dog, whom we let sleep in our bedroom every day for the last 13 years, awoke me at 2.53 a.m. this morning, and I could never fall back to sleep. So, woken up by his dog doing Rule Breaker Investing on about three hours of sleep. I'll try to try to be worthy of your time this week. First one up. This is an email that came in from Jerry Lynch. Gerald Lynch appreciated this one. Jerry, you said, Dear David, the Motley Fool's approach to stock analysis has been profitable for me. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I, however, continue to be skeptical of the importance you place in the CEO's or executive committee's leadership abilities. The supposed strong correlation between the leader's management style and the appreciation in the stock does not hold up over the long run, Jerry writes. He goes on, Analyzing, for example, large-cap companies, which have been around a long time, think Johnson & Johnson, can all the variables which explain the success of that corporation be reduced to the personality of a few individuals at the top of the organization? Surely, the global political economic upheavals, often unforeseen, make a far greater impact on the fate of an individual company than does the personality of the CEO. Bottom line, do you assert that the millions of daily decisions made by thousands of individuals in the organization are primarily the results of following the charismatic vision of the great leader? Sounds like the fallacy that drives a cult, not a corporation. Final point, recent histories of the British Empire attribute less and less importance to the personalities of the royals or the parliamentary politicians. Indeed, the success of the British is better explained by the degree to which they allowed local leaders in far-flung colonies to act with a high degree of autonomy. Signed, Gerald Lynch. Love the email, love the thinking. Um, I'm going to speak out both sides of my mouth, because that's what I do a lot of the time here on this podcast. And it's not because I want to leave anybody on the horns of a dilemma, or I myself don't have a particular opinion. It's that I, I want to show both sides, because often both sides are present. So, really quickly here, Jerry. First of all, I am absolutely of the school, and I think I remember this from my one reading of War and Peace. I believe that Tolstoy and his own mentality was that had Napoleon not come along, it all still would have played out. French domination, revolution, uh, world domination, failure, it still was going to happen. The movement was there. Too many minds were focused that way. And that was Tolstoy's view of history, that it's not about the great man theory of history, that one individual man or woman really makes everything happen, but rather, often it comes about through cultures and movements. And it might be that one 
person is inspired or rises above and certainly has an effect, but it was going to happen anyway. So, I want to say, first of all, that I generally think that way about great companies. I think that Google came along at the right time. Uh, had it not been Google, it would have been somebody else. Well, really, it kind of replaced Yahoo in a lot of ways, which was the pre-Google Google. So, clearly, Internet search was bound to happen, as was e-commerce with Amazon, and the list goes on. However, I think we can also recognize that it was this company, not that one. As I've sometimes pointed out, it's Amazon, not Buy.com, that has ended up being the big winner and the big player. And you know what? I think that is greatly to do with the fact that Jeff Bezos has run Amazon, or Steve Jobs founded Apple. So, I think what I want to say to you to try to tie these things together is that, on the one hand, I agree with you, the great man theory of history is not a great one. Uh, I think it's more about movements. On the other hand, um, for companies that are early stage, that are entrepreneur-driven, that are visionary, it was absolutely critical that that company had Jeff Bezos or Howard Schultz, who started Starbucks, or Elon Musk. It was absolutely critical that those companies had those people, and those people, in a lot of ways, explain the returns that we've benefited from. We who've been patient with those people and their companies over time, and have gotten a good deal richer because of our patience. So, what I'm saying is, Johnson & Johnson, I don't even know who the CEO is today, or who it's been for the last 40 years. And to tell you the truth, I don't really know the history of the company. I don't know who Johnson and Johnson were. But for more modern day contemporary companies, I do know the founders. And in many cases, I know them because they're truly great. And we've benefited from that. So I think it's more the type of company we're looking at, not the idea that one of these theories or not the other is the way to explain all companies or all of history. I think you have to look contextually. And here, we're typically looking at rule breakers. And rule breakers are almost always driven by real visionaries big-time leaders who can translate their vision into real results. So, there it is, both sides of my mouth. Thanks for a great question. Number two this month. Hey there, my name is Jeff Pugh, Jeff writes. I'm a 31-year-old actor living in New York City. I'm a Stock Advisor subscriber and an avid listener of all Motley Fool podcasts. Love the show. Question. I'm new to investing. I'm working with a small amount of cash. What I've been doing is investing in some of my favorite stock picks from Stock Advisor, as I'm able to on about a once-a-month basis. $500 here, $1,000 there. Is it okay to continually add to my existing stocks in my portfolio, or is it better to save up a larger sum of cash and make a bigger purchase all at once? Thanks. Love the show. All the great insight from Rule Breakers and all the Fool Podcasts. Jeff. Jeff, thank you for a great question. I think a question that's on a lot of people's minds. That's why I'm more than pleased to address it this week. And I'm going to come down solidly on the side of, yeah, $500 here, $1,000 there. I love the idea of being regular. Small, sometimes less small, sometimes larger sums of money, but just invest when you can. And here's why. First of all, these days, if you have the right brokerage account, and there are a number of online brokers in particular that allow you to buy fractional shares or have very low commissions. If, if, by the way, that is not your case, then it does make sense to save up money and do a little bit more of a lump sum if you're getting nickeled and dimed to death on commissions. But if you're using something like Robinhood or ShareAdvisor, which is no longer an independent company but was bought out, but if you have that kind of a, a framework where you can invest cheaply anytime you're ready, I so favor that because the opposite is to load it up. The opposite is to doll up a big bunch of dollars and 
feel like you're making a big decision. And I think that's when emotions can sometimes play against us, when sometimes we can be a little bit more reluctant even to invest. With a larger sum, you might think, should I get in now? I mean, wow, the market's been so strong over the last six months. Maybe I should wait. And I think you're much less likely to fall into what I think of as a mental trap, which is what I think that is. I think you're much less likely to fall into that mental trap when you just make it an everyday thing, or an every week thing, or every two weeks, whatever the sum of money. It also is going to make you sit up and pay more attention to your stocks, and to think about where you want to place that 500 or that 1,000 uh, this time. And, and you know what? Our ideas change as we go. You're a Stock Advisor subscriber, so you know that we come up with a few ideas every month. We have our Best Buys Now, we have my new pick, my brother's new pick. We have a lot of ideas for you, so your ideas may change over, over time, and it's just going to be more efficient, I think, to deploy money when you have it. Hope that makes sense. Final point I'll, I'll make here is that if you do the math of it, the earlier you deploy any dollar into the stock market, net-net, the better off you will be. And why is that? Because the stock market tends to go up. Therefore, if you tend to wait and, let's say, put together a big lump sum, you've kept that money out of the market. And again, the stock market tends to rise 10% a year. We all know it goes down dramatically sometimes. But over the course of time, on any given day, it should be rising a little bit. So, the longer you wait to put any dollar at work for you, the less that dollar will do for you down the road. Thanks, Jeff. This next one is an email from Martin. Martin writes, Hello, David. Thank you and your producer very much for your consistently excellent RBI podcast. I never give enough shout out to Rick Engdahl, who does such a good job editing me and taking out all the mistakes that I make that you never hear every single week. That's one of the reasons I don't really want to do this podcast live in front of people, because you'd see how often I screw up, but you never do because of Rick Engdahl. Anyway, Martin goes on, I'm an English teacher in Japan, and a fellow English major, something I once heard Buffett unfortunately frown upon. I don't know that reference, but I, I chuckle a little bit about that. Anyway, you go on to say, I enjoy listening to your podcasts every week as I drive to work deep through the Japanese countryside with your voice among the green rice fields, farmers on old bikes, and many temples. It makes for quite a colorful contrast, one quite inspiring, as I usually never meet any English speakers here certainly not ones to talk about investing. I also always listen a couple more times back at home and take copious notes. I'm definitely not worthy of that, Martin. You need to up your game. No, thank you very much. Um, I've learned so much from your weekly gift to us. Thank you, and please thank your father from me. I meant to send a thank you note to him on his birthday when you mentioned it a number of months back. I've been able to share your enlightened approach and insights on investing with many people here, so its impact is truly global. I've also greatly benefited financially from your stock ideas in addition to the RBI podcast through going into more detail on investing in your book, Rule Breakers, Rule Makers, subscribing to Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers. Wow, Martin, you are the very model of a modern major fool. Thank you, sir. And you close that paragraph with Domo Arigatou. I'm really going to butcher this. Gozaimashita. I'm not sure what we said, but I hope that was family friendly. Now, your final sentence. I've thought for a long time a question to ask that would be applicable and helpful for the RB audience. One question I think is worth always asking and reviewing is, how can one determine the winners apart from the losers in the stocks that you like to focus and invest in? Thank you. Regards, Martin. Wow, that really cuts right to the nub, doesn't it? How do we separate our winners from our losers? I'm tempted to want to say, and leave it at this, that if I could do so, I would be a much, much better investor. But I think 
even though I have a lot of losers and I don't seem to be able to always recognize what's going to be wheat and what's going to be chaff, I am going to give you one tool to think about, Martin. And I know I'm speaking here to somebody who subscribes both to Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers. So I hope you'll avail yourself of a tool that lies within those services. And that tool is something I talk about oh, every month or so on this show. And those are our risk ratings. So this is a tool that we developed a few years ago. It's a zero to 25 point system for scoring the amount of risk inherent in any stock that we're talking about. The higher the score, the riskier the stock. So if a stock has a risk rating of 15, it is far riskier than a stock with a risk rating of 6. So I would highly suggest that if you're looking to avoid losers, that you probably tend to go with our lower risk stocks. One of the interesting things about our risk ratings is we've discovered over time that risk and reward do not correlate in as pure a manner as one might think. I think one of the shocking and brilliant insights that this tool has given us is that sometimes things that really are low risk actually have greater reward than those high-flying, overpriced things that might be biotech and have a really high risk rating that look exciting if they can just get FDA approval but then implode sometimes in our faces, which we're still going to do from time to time, because that's what we do as rule breakers. But my point is, if you're really looking to increase the percentage of time that you get wins, that you make money, that you beat the market, I think our internal stats show that risk ratings 5 to 8, down in that range, I did talk about this last year at one point, those are the ways, I think, to increase your percentage of success if you are looking to avoid losers. Just know, that if you are looking to avoid losers, sometimes you'll miss some big winners because you had a reduced risk profile. And so that's something that I'm sure you'll understand. And maybe you already knew this tool, Martin, but for anybody who is a stock advisor or Rule Breakers member, you can see the risk rating for every one of our stocks that we cover. And we tend to update those maybe once a year or so. All right. So those were those were three meaty questions. I feel like we're already about halfway through this podcast, and therefore. Thanks to Bombfell for supporting Rule Breaker Investing. Bombfell is an online personal styling service for men that helps find the right clothes for you. After completing a simple questionnaire, which, by the way, I did and I enjoyed, it's kind of fun, it's visual, you can sort of show what you like and what you don't like, you're going to be matched one on one with a dedicated personal stylist who's going to handpick every piece for you. Bombfell scours menswear collections of brands and designers from around the world to send you pieces that work best for you. Clothing is, and I had this done as I mentioned, so this does happen, it's shipped straight to your door. So if you're somebody like me who tries not to shop at all offline, then you'll be pleased by this experience. So you pay for the clothes that you keep, and you're going to send back the rest, if you didn't like them, at no charge. In my case, I got a pretty handsome plaid shirt and quality slacks, gray slacks. I think I looked pretty good in them. My wife seemed to approve, so we kept those. They also threw in a hoodie. Maybe not exactly what I was looking for. Maybe not my favorite hoodie, but I kept it anyway, because I have two sons who will probably enjoy it as well. But my point is, I've had the experience with Bombfell. I enjoyed it. And certainly, if I hadn't liked those garments, I could have sent them back. So, we've got a special offer just for listeners of this show and Motley Fool Podcast. So, you're going to get $25 off your first purchase. You just go to bombfell.com slash fool. So, that's B-O-M-B, as in bombfell, F-E-L-L, dot com slash fool. $25 off your first purchase. Thanks again to Bombfell for supporting The Motley Fool.
Now back item number four. This is just a couple of plaudits that came in via Twitter for our episode earlier this month, Why We Misunderstand Each Other, in which I interviewed friend and author Nick Epley. And I was really pleased that you all seemed to enjoy this. It's We're not always straight on with investing on this podcast, although I like to think that you'll walk away educated, amused, and enriched and a more knowledgeable person about your money, no matter which of the random Rule Breaker investing podcasts you can fit into your, your month. But it was great to hear from Tabo Hermanas. I hope I got your name right, Tabo. I see you certainly uh, tweeted out on Twitter. You said this was an unexpected episode, but really awesome. I enjoyed the interview quotes from the other side of the river, and that's because Tabo lives in South Africa. And by the way, Tabo, you and I appear to share an interest in wine, although you have quite a lot more knowledge and experience there than I do. But thank you for writing in. And I also heard from my friend Linda Queen. Linda said, David G. Fool, all-time great episode about that one. In investing, you said, I've got hashtag time. I can use all the help with hashtag temperament. Love the hashtag psych topics with some claps. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Linda. And I think you make a really good point. As I've often tried to say in so many ways in the past on Rule Breaker Investing, getting better at investing is really just getting better at thinking and acting on your thinking. And that's part of what we train when we think about how we think. And when we have friends like Nick Epley who can come in and help us sometimes disabuse ourselves of some of the illusions we may harbor. For example, we often think we know what other people are thinking far less than we actually do know what they're thinking. So that was a good insight, and I enjoyed that episode. So we'll definitely have some more interviews throughout 2017. I enjoy maybe a few times a quarter having an extended conversation with um, somebody that interests me. In fact, we're going to have one such guest, which I'll talk about at the end of this show next week. Mailbag item number five. And heck, I just referred to Linda Queen. Linda, you are also in this month's mailbag. You pandered to me. And I appreciate all pandering to me. You pandered to me by asking, well, it was actually a question I invited someone to ask me because I would feature them on the mailbag if somebody asked me this question. So, in so many words, you put it this way. Here's a question for next month. What board games do you recommend that help develop a mindset for investing? Well done, Linda. So, I'm glad you mentioned that. And you know what? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one. My tendency is to want to do a whole show on this one. But then again, I already did a whole show on this one. The title of the show was Five Favorite Board Games That Will Make You a Better Investor. The date, June 22, 2016, just about a year ago. And in that podcast, you can skip listening to the whole thing again if you want. I'll just mention the five games that I named that make you a better investor. And in alphabetical order, they are Acquire, Dominion, Innovation, Modern Art, and Pandemic Legacy. Each of those games, for a reason I give in that podcast, will make you a better investor. It'll also help you while away the summer hours with family and friends. Each of those is a great game, one that I personally enjoy, which is why I featured them. But maybe I'll have a fresh set of board games at some point this summer when I'm feeling sufficiently gamey. Gamely? This next one comes from Paul Wayand. Paul, who knows we have an affinity on this show for misquoting famous people provides one of his own. I like this one a lot. It's Mother Teresa. Paul says, here's a quote or poem attributed to Mother Teresa, although she likely did not write it. The word God in the last sentence can be replaced if you feel it's necessary for non-religious folks. Well, I don't. So, I'll just read it as is. I like this one. We think Mother Teresa never actually wrote or said this, but here we go. People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. 
If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give the best you've got anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Thanks for all the great podcasts. Paul said you've got a great group of talent working with you. Appreciate that, Paul. Mailbag item number seven. This one comes from Jamie Mason. Hi, I'm a pharmacist who recently graduated from pharmacy school, and with that, I have a lot of student loans to pay back. This, by the way, is a classic question, Jamie. I'm very happy to feature this one as well. We answered this many times in the past on our Motley Fool radio show back when we used to do AM radio and NPR. So, this is a classic, and let's have your version of it. I also just recently bought my first house, you wrote, because I didn't want to pay someone's mortgage when I could pay for my own. I first began to like investing in stocks when my grandfather taught about them when I was in middle school. We continued to talk about them, and then I saw Under Armour was having an IPO, and I told him he should buy it, because being in high school at the time, everyone was wearing UA gear under their football uniforms and baseball uniforms. He didn't listen to me, and the stock went quickly from $15 to $55 a share, and I never let him live that down after that. I've since started listening to your podcast, become a big fan. I check the market every day and have some already saved in the market. But my question is, should I be putting more in the market or putting more money to my student loans? I've been aggressively paying them back with any extra money I have going to them. My ultimate question is, should new grads be paying off their student loans by adding on to their standard payment or income-based payment? Or should we, with the extra money, invest in the stock market? I don't want to miss out on any multi-baggers, or spiffy pops. Thank you, Jamie. Jamie, it's a great question. It's very natural, because after all, when you have an extra dollar at the end of the day and you have debt, it becomes very natural to wonder, should I be paying off my debt? Or there's this thing called the stock market, which rises 10% a year, and if I'm finding better companies than the average index fund is investing in, could I beat that 10 And so, what should I do with my extra dollar at the end of the day? And I think it comes down to a story of interest rates. So, I don't know what your student loan interest rate is. But being purely mathematical here, if it's a low single-digit number, and for a lot of students, that is around the level of their student loan. If it's a low single-digit number, I think you're okay continuing to invest in the stock market. Pay it off slowly, as you've already described, I think, that you are doing. Because it makes a lot more sense to me, if you have extra money, to have it riding on something that's rising 10% or so a year, And I realize the stock market may be all about to sell off 25%, just as I say that. We never know where the market's headed, but it makes more sense, take it all in all, to have your money rising and paying off that low-interest loan slowly and separately, and when appropriate. Now, on the other hand, if we're talking about higher-interest loan, if we're talking about credit cards, 
it's very obvious every dollar we have should be paying off that debt as quickly as possible. You're not going to be able to maintain a lot of credit card debt and invest in the stock market successfully. The math will simply work against you. So, this is a very coldly mathematical answer from me, but I think it's the right way of thinking about it. And by the way, beyond the cold math, let me just mix in that for some of us, we have a certain orientation or a mentality about things. So, for example, for me, I don't like to have debt at all. I just don't like to have it. It's just not part of who I am or how I've been or how I've how I was raised. So, I always paid off debt if I had it and just got rid of it, didn't want to have it at all. And I think my stock market returns have suffered a little bit as a consequence because some of the stocks I picked have been pretty awesome and I should have actually just maintained a mortgage, let's say, and just held those stocks instead. But for me, that was more my orientation. Maybe that's you. I would not encourage you to go against your natural instincts. However, if you're either way, I think the math works. So, I hope that helped. All right, just two more this week. Mailbag item number eight. This is a letter in from Ashish Gajar, a member of Motley Fool Million Dollar Portfolio Service. Thank you, Ashish. Hello, David. Thank you for taking my question. One of the tenets of rule breaker investing that you've espoused can be roughly analogized to the notion that, quotes, winners keep on winning. As investors, we hope this plays out in a company's rising stock price as a reflection of that company's market cap, its valuation. So, as the company can keep winning, when it comes to greater earnings, it may also likely keep winning as it comes to optimism or demand for the limited number of its company's shares, thereby increasing the share price. If the latter accelerates faster than the former, the P-E ratio, the price-to-earnings ratio, will increase. Ashish goes on, I frequently hear that the market is rich or frothy or pricey, and the basis of this is comparing historical price-to-earnings ratio trends. So people will say, just to interject here, people will say, look at the market's PE. It's 17 or 19 right now, and that's above the historic mean of, let's say, 14 or 15. You'll hear that kind of talk, not just today or this month, but all the time, every year. Back to Ashish's note. But is one caveat not that there's much more demand for US equities in general now? than ever before. With freer markets, the expression of global demand for finite or limited goods, whether they be stocks or collectibles or real estate, would tend to drive up prices faster than earnings might increase. I understand this creates a so-called bubble, you say, which may eventually burst or correct all terms we tend to avoid in Rule Breaker Investing, and you're right, thank you. But can we not take some solace in the fact that the bubble itself expanding is a natural consequence of greater global wealth seeking to invest in quality Securities. Many of these are likely to be rule breakers. I'll end it there, but you said big fan of the show and the Motley Fool. Thank you, Ashish. So, the question is basically about the historic market PE and whether it's a good gauge and why it is where it is today, if it's looking higher, which it is, than usual. And I want to say two things quickly about this. The first is that the price to earnings ratio has to be considered in the context of the interest rate atmosphere, the environment in which any market exists. Very simply, you have a choice with your money. You could just put it in the bank or buy a bond, something that pays you interest. You could lend that dollar out, or you could take more risk and invest it directly, possibly losing the whole dollar or some portion of it, not necessarily winning. So, you always have that choice to go safe by lending it or to go riskier by investing it. And when interest rates are really low, which they've been for a prolonged period of time, Naturally, there's not a lot of incentive to invest in things that pay interest. Therefore, 
people buy stocks and therefore PE ratios augment, they accelerate. So it's not just about a number that sits in a vacuum like 19 versus 14. I think you have to understand price to earnings ratios within the context of the interest rate environment in which we live. So if and when interest rates climb, that hurts stocks, it always does. And if they were to climb dramatically, that would sink the market for a for a period of time. There's no question about that. All that said, my second point about this is that I spend very little time concerning myself with historic market price-to-earnings ratios. I realize um, very serious-minded people, some very impressive people, academics, economists, market forecasters, they care deeply about these numbers. But my observation about them, and maybe the rule-breakers aside to you, is that it's usually a very short-term context that they're thinking about the market. They're thinking about the market in 2017, or they're worried the market might be high this summer. That kind of thing. For those of us who've made a lifelong commitment to being an investor, that is, to having our capital in the market and not guessing, not head-faking ourselves out of bull markets or buying at the top of the market sometimes, which is a mistake that I make every time I invest my next two weeks' salary. If the market's high, I'll look back and say, wow, I bought at the top of the market. You might have, too. But the point is, I really don't get too concerned about market valuation. And with every passing day, and I'm now 51 years old, I try to spend less time thinking or guessing about where the market is, where it should be, or where it's headed. The truth is, when you and I invest, we're not buying the market unless we buy an index fund. We're buying individual companies. That's what I do in Rule Breakers, and that's what we talk about here in Rule Breaker Investing. And so we're really just owning companies. We're becoming part owners of great enterprises that have wonderful products and services, sometimes life changing, life benefiting, world benefiting products and services driven by great management and lots of good capital all around. And they tend to grow over time. That's the simple game that we're playing. So, Ashish, I don't know if that was helpful for you, because I didn't really answer, ultimately, what the market's PE should be. I do think, again, it should be in the context of interest rates, and I do not care that much about it at any given day, month, quarter, or year. I guess I should add an addendum. If you're at or near retirement, it probably matters more to you. It's a little easier for me to say at the age of 51, I don't pay as much attention. But if I were trying to pull all my money out of the market in the next five years to retire, I would be more focused on it. I realize that I'm certainly speaking to people as I say this, and that does describe your your case. And for you, sir and ma'am, I hope that you will be smart about investing. Usually, what we do is we're incremental. So, as you start approaching the time you're going to need that capital, as opposed to just growing it, I would suggest that you start to transition it over. You'll you'll get good answers on the Motley Fool Answers podcast, our Rule Your Retirement service, in terms of how to think about the overall context of your portfolio approaching retirement. But I'm giving the more timeless answer that I that I have at least at this stage of my life, which a lot of us have. If you're thinking more than one decade ahead with your money, all right, probably too long an answer. So why not close quickly and humorously? So if you're listening at the end of last week's podcast, you heard my Mary Richards story, and I got two pretty good tweets about that story. By the way, if you don't know what I'm referring to, you can go back and listen. If you don't, then you won't get these jokes. But if you do, you're rewarded with a good punchline or two. So John Benini wrote in simply, David, you're lucky Richard didn't decide to respond by saying, Dick. And Ken Hart wrote, more on a trivial note, Mary Richards, ever single, was Mary Tyler Moore's sitcom name. Hashtag for what it's worth. Hashtag two cents. John, thank you for the laugh. Ken, thank you for the good heart. Pun intended, as always. 
Well, I mentioned that we have a special guest next week. We do. His name is Zach Cantor. I first came across Zach's work. I mean, he's been working for a while in the space of technology, but he wrote a great article a few years ago about the implications of autonomous vehicles. And since then, at cocktail parties, people who don't even follow technology that much are saying things to me like, you know, Geico might be in trouble when insurance goes away, or do you realize the implications of autonomous cars on real estate and specifically parking lots and what that could mean for how the design of urban environments changes over the course of time and all kinds of far-reaching implications of this. And Zach was pretty much nailing it a few years before anybody was really talking about it. So, I definitely wanted to get to know Zach. I've never met him before. He lives in Boulder, Colorado. He's the co-founder and CEO at Steady. He's a bright young mind, and I'm really looking forward to his insights and sharing them with you next week. In the meantime, fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.